Thank you, Sarah, very much indeed. Um, Well, please do keep the Bible open. Please also do have the bulletin, the white bulletin open, and uh, I think you'll find the outline will help you as we work through this um, interesting and uh, profound passage. But let's ask for God's help as we begin. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for one another. We thank you for this time together. And we thank you for the freedom to sit under your word. We pray, Lord, that your word would be our rule and guide, your Holy Spirit our teacher, and your glory our supreme concern. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, the theme of our series, as I think you know by now, is living under grace. And uh, our text is the three chapters in Paul's letter to the Romans, chapters 6, 7 and 8. But uh, before we get into our passage today, I thought it might be helpful to start by standing back from the detail for just a moment and trying to get the big picture clear in our minds. Because somebody might say, well, why are you doing this series? It might seem to them that what we're doing here is rather negative, because there's a great deal in these chapters about sin, uh, about guilt, and about the law. And uh, since Christianity is becoming more and more disliked in the culture, Why on earth would we spend eight weeks looking at these things? Uh, A survey in America paints a rather disturbing picture. It says that in 1996, 85% of unbelievers were favourable towards Christianity. They were unbelievers, but they were favourable. Fifteen years later, the same survey says that 16% of unbelievers were favourable to Christianity. That's a drop of nearly 70% in 15 years. So why are we talking about things that the world is not interested in and doesn't want to hear about? And the answer to that is the answer that Jesus gives, which is that the world is not well. According to Jesus, everyone is sick. He is the doctor, and Jesus says that there are only two kinds of people in the world. There's the sick who think they're well, and there's the sick who know that they're sick, spiritually sick, of course. Now, of course, you can go on pretending that you're well for quite a long time, and plenty of people are doing just that. But it is better, isn't it, to face the problem and find the solution. So Christianity is not creating the problem, it is facing the problem. Uh, John Stott once spoke about a psychiatrist that he had in his congregation. This man said that if he could give all of his patients a cure for guilt a massive number of their problems would be solved. His waiting room would empty overnight. 
The second thing to say is that these passages in Romans might seem to show that actually we Christians are rather more enslaved than non-Christians. You see, we look at our non-Christian friends, don't we, and very often they seem to be having the most marvellous time. Uh, You always notice this on Sunday, don't you? Hordes of people jogging and going to the gym. They're partying. They're shopping. They're going on holiday. And nobody's beating themselves up about sin. But then you come into the church and here we are, we talk about freedom, but to the unbeliever it seems that we're tying ourselves up in knots and uh, that we're looking at our sins rather like monkeys picking fleas off one another in the zoo. That I think is often what the unbeliever thinks about us. Now I want to say that the answer to that objection is that there is a very big difference between feeling free and actually being free. Uh, There's a famous photograph on the internet of the terrible tsunami of 2004. I'm sure you remember it. Uh, That great tsunami that hit the west coast of Indonesia and a quarter of a a million people perished. And uh, there's a remarkable photograph of that event with a kiosk in the centre of the picture. And uh, in front of the kiosk, uh, there is a man on his phone. Uh, He's looking totally relaxed. He's not aware that anything in particular might be wrong. And behind him, there's another man running uh, for dear life. Behind the kiosk, there is a wave twice the height of the kiosk and it's about to swallow everything. The the man on the phone obviously feels quite secure and free, but he's not. The man who's running feels extremely troubled, but he's running for safety. And I want to say that a Christian is somebody who takes seriously the tsunami of death and judgment. And he or she runs to Christ for security because they know there is nowhere else to go. So you see, it's one thing to feel secure, but it's another thing altogether to actually be secure. Now what the Apostle Paul is doing in these chapters is showing us why the Christian can have complete confidence that he or she will not actually be swept away by the tsunami of death and judgment. Now I know these chapters are not especially easy. Uh, In parts they can be really rather chewy. So uh, I want to suggest what I think is rather a helpful way to think about Paul's overall message so that we get the big picture clear in our minds. Paul is saying that when you put your faith in Jesus, you are seated on what we might call the gospel horse. And you're being carried safely through to glory. That was the message of Romans 5 that we looked at last year. But this year we began our series in Romans chapter 6. And Romans chapter 6 is saying that if you try and carry 
a suitcase of sin with you on the horse, it's going to be really rather difficult. It is not going to be an easy ride. You're going to be thinking, well, you know, this case is really very heavy. I might actually fall off the horse at any moment. Then Romans 7 says that if you carry a life-size mirror with you on the horse, it's going to be very difficult. Because instead of looking where you're going, you're going to be constantly looking at yourself in that mirror. And you'll be so stressed out by what you look like that you won't even be thinking about where you're going. You might even forget you're on the horse at all. And Romans chapter 8 says that if you keep your eyes on Jesus and if you keep asking for the help of the Holy Spirit, you'll travel well. It will actually be a good ride. Yes, there'll be plenty of jumps and ditches and some of them will be really really rather scary, but you will travel well. And as you go on with Jesus you will know with increasing certainty that you really are going to get to glory. So starting next Sunday morning, we're going to spend four Sundays in Romans chapter 8 because that's the climax. That's where our hope is to be found. So cross out everything else you've got in the diary for the next four Sundays. Make sure you're here for that. But this morning we're in Romans 7. And in the next few minutes, I want to try and uncover the main thing that Paul is saying to us in these verses. Uh, You'll be relieved to know I'm not going to attempt a detailed explanation of every verse. That, I think, would be impossible in just one sermon. But I want us to try and grasp the big idea and to try and understand why it matters so much for us as Christians today. And if we do that, I think we'll find that Paul's message is actually simple, it's powerful, and it's practical. This is not abstract theology for intellectuals. This is practical truth for ordinary Christians like me and like you. Because, you see, it concerns normal Christian experience. That's what Paul's talking about here. He wants us to know what it feels like to be a normal Christian living under grace. And I want us to look at this from two angles this morning, which you'll see in the bulletin. The first is the pattern of Christian experience, and we'll be spending most of our time on that. And then for just a few moments at the end, we'll look at the purpose of Christian experience. So firstly then, the pattern of Christian experience. Now what I find so very moving in these verses is that Paul turns to his own experience and he uses himself as an example. This is personal testimony. You see, by God's grace, Paul is a good man. God has changed him. God has given him a new heart. He wants to obey God's law. He loves it. 
He believes it's good, he wants to keep it. But he can't. At least he can't completely. He can't keep it in the way that he wants to. And it deeply disturbs him. It grieves him, it upsets him, and he's not satisfied with himself. And he also realises that the law by itself is not enough. And it never will be enough. He must have help from somewhere else. Now can I say that what is so very striking about these verses is that Paul's experience is not unique to him. Uh, Some of Paul's experiences were, of course, for example, you and I have not met the risen Christ on the Damascus Road. You and I have not been caught up to paradise in a vision like the Apostle Paul was. Those experiences were unique to him. But you see, as we read these words in Romans 7, we find ourselves saying, yes, I identify with this. This is me. I'm being described here. This isn't something unique or unusual. I want to keep God's law, but all too often I find that I can't. I do things I don't want to do, and I don't do things that I do want to do. Now, of course, experience can never be an ultimate guide. But you see, here are a a series of statements that those of us who are Christians can immediately and instinctively identify with. When we read about Paul's struggle with sin, we don't say, well, I'm not like that. We say, I am like that. I am exactly like that. So this portion of God's word is talking about me and it's talking about you. The truth of Paul's experience registers in our own hearts this morning. So what then is Paul's experience? How can we define it? Well, I believe that there are three elements in Paul's Christian experience as he describes it for us here. Firstly, you'll notice there are his goals. He describes for us his aspirations as a Christian. He tells us what he wants to do. He shares with us the great purpose of his Christian life. So just follow through with me. Start at the end of verse 16. He says there, I agree that the law is good. Now look at the middle of verse 18. Paul says, I have the desire to do what is good. And then at the beginning of verse 19, he talks about the good I want to do. He says it again, verse 21, I want to do good. And then at the beginning of verse 22, he says, in my inner being, I delight in God's law. By the way, notice the contrast there, will you? In verse 16, he says he agrees the law is good, but verse 22 is a whole lot stronger than that, isn't it? He says, I don't just like it, I love it. 
I delight in it. I honour it. It represents who I want to be. What he's saying is, when I hear, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and you shall love your neighbour as yourself, that strikes a chord deep in my heart, says the Apostle Paul. So here then, you see, is a true believer, a converted person, someone who's been born again, and their highest and their best aspirations are always towards obedience and holiness. My dear friend, can I ask you this morning, are those your aspirations? Are these your longings? Do you want to be good? Do you want to be loving? Do you want to be holy? Do you actually want to keep God's commandments? When you hear the commandments of God, do you say, oh no, I wish God hadn't said that? Or do you say, I wish I could obey that commandment more fully? Because, my friend, if you don't feel that, are you a Christian? Are you actually a Christian at all? Because these are the aspirations, the goals, the aims of a true believer. You see, these things could not be true of an unbeliever. And the reason I say that is because in verse 22... Paul talks about his inner being. You'll notice that phrase there. And uh, the phrase in the original is used in only two other places in the whole of the New Testament. And on both occasions, it's talking about a Christian. Now, you don't need to turn to it, but if you are taking notes, you might like to jot down 2 Corinthians 4.16. And in that verse, the Apostle says this, Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly, actually it's the same phrase that we have in Romans 7, in my inner being, we are being renewed day by day. Now you can't say that about an unbeliever. That's only true of a Christian. And in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 16, it's even clearer than that. This is the famous prayer that Paul uh, prays for the church in Ephesus. And he says, quote, I pray that out of his glorious riches, God may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now again, that's only true of a Christian, isn't it? You could never say that about an unbeliever. So can we get it clear, friends, in our minds that Romans 7 at this passage, Paul is talking about a Christian. And a real Christian has got these particular goals and aspirations. And that is the first element in Paul's Christian experience. The second element here is Paul's sins and failures. So come with me to the end of verse 14. Speaking about himself, uh, Paul says, I am unspiritual 
sold as a slave to sin. Extraordinary thing for an apostle to say. And then at the end of verse 17, he identifies the source of his failures. He says, it is sin living in me. And at the beginning of verse 18, he spells it out for us in words of one syllable. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Now, my friends, isn't that true of every single one of us? How many times do we have the desire to do what is right, but somehow we don't do it? Or even more disturbing, at the end of verse 19, he says, the evil I do not want to do, evil, this I keep on doing. Would anybody in this room here this morning dare to say that this is not true of them? It is true of us, isn't it? The things we hate. We say something and immediately we think, why did I say that? I shouldn't have said it. I didn't mean to say it. But I did say it. Cruel words. Hurtful words. And we do things and and we hate ourselves for doing them. And that is the Apostle Paul's experience. On the one hand, he has these goals and ambitions and aspirations, and on the other hand, there are his sins and his failures. And then the third element in Paul's Christian experience is that this conflict causes tremendous tension and unhappiness in his heart. Look at verse 15 again. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. Why do I do that? Have you ever asked yourself that question? I sincerely hope you have. Why did I say that? What's wrong with me? Why did I commit that sin? I don't understand it, he says. So he says in verse 21, I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Now, if you've nodded off, here is the most important point of the sermon. If you get hold of this, it's going to help you. Because Paul here is not talking about his entire Christian experience. Very important to understand that. It's where people go wrong in interpreting this passage. This is not a description of his entire Christian life. Mostly, mostly, Paul's Christian life is victory and it is joy and it is peace. Most of the time, he obeys God's commandments. Most of the time, he overcomes sin. Most of the time, he resists temptation. Most of the time, his heart is filled with gladness 
and the peace of God keeps him. So what he's writing about here is what happens when he sins. And when he sins, in that particular moment, he feels utterly wretched. So imagine a young man of around 30 years of age. Uh, He's handsome. He's a superb athlete. He's a multimillionaire. He's got houses all over the place, a fabulous yacht, a couple of Ferraris. He's married to a stunningly beautiful wife. Uh, They have three adorable children. He's right at the top of his profession and he's He's a loving father and he's a loving husband. Everything in this man's life is absolutely perfect. But one summer's morning as he uh, goes off to work, he catches his finger in the door of his Ferrari. Um, As he closes the door, he kind of smashes the door onto his finger and the bone is pointing through the flesh. So he he rushes off to the doctor and his face is contorted with agony and he says, Doctor, doctor, I've broken my finger. I'm in absolute agony. I can't bear it. And the doctor says, Pull yourself together, man. There are 157 bones in the human body and in your case, 156 of them are perfect. You've got a beautiful wife. You've got millions in the bank. Your life is the envy of all your friends and here you are complaining about one little bone. And the young man says, yeah, I I, I can't argue with any of that. It's all wonderful. But this finger at this moment is very, very, very sore. Do you see the point? When you and I commit a sin and we do something that is disgraceful and inexcusable and horrible, we are thoroughly ashamed of it. It is hurtful, it is ugly, it is foul. That is the broken finger. Yes, we know that our Christian lives are joyful. We know that our sins are forgiven. We know that we've been blessed and that Christ is with us and that we're part of a new worldwide family of people who love us and we love them. But at that moment, we feel ashamed and heartbroken and disgusted with ourselves. Why did I do that? I didn't mean to do it. I didn't want to do it. What is wrong with me? that causes me to do it. And here's the point. The distress that you feel in that moment is a sign of spiritual health. Think about it with me. Let's say you have completely lost your temper uh, with your husband or your wife and you've said some really hurtful and unforgivable things. Uh, Let's say for the sake of argument that it's the husband. doesn't have to be. It could be the wife. But let's say for the sake of argument this morning, it's the husband. And there you are and your wife is weeping. You've hurt her. You have really, really hurt her. 
Now, are you going to say in that moment, well, uh, never mind, um, I've got the imputed righteousness of Christ, um, God sees me as absolutely perfect in him, uh, all my sins are forgiven, I'm going to heaven, of course I, I'm, I'm rather sorry, my poor wife is sobbing her heart out, but I don't need to be overly concerned about it. No, you don't. You don't say that, do you? You say, what a rotten person I am. What a wretched man I am. God be merciful to me, a sinner. And in that moment, that's how you feel. Now, that is what Paul is talking about here. He's saying that when he sins, as he does, and as you and I do, he feels wretched. And that is a very good thing. But the question is, what do you do with it? What do you do with it? Because the law can't help him. The law is no use in that situation. The law can't deliver him. I mean, he can read the Bible all day and all night, but it won't change what he is. He can try his best to keep the law, but it will actually make no lasting difference because the problem isn't with the law. The problem is with his inner being. And in that situation, to rely on the law to change you is like using a tool for the wrong purpose. So, for example, you might have um, an axe in your shed at home and uh, your wife might say to you, you know, I've got some ladies coming for tea tomorrow afternoon and I'd like to make some dainty cucumber sandwiches for them. Can you cut the bread for me? And uh, you sort of come in with this massive axe in your hand. Now, you wouldn't do a very good job with it, would you? But the point is, it's not the axe's fault. It wasn't meant for that. Uh, it wasn't designed for that. It was meant for something completely different. And in exactly the same way, there is nothing wrong with the law of God. There is nothing missing in the law of God. The law of God never fails. But it wasn't given to make sinful people better. And if you try and use it for the wrong purpose, you will end up bungling, like those mangled cucumber sandwiches. This, then, is the pattern of our Christian experience. But I think one question uh, must bubble up in our minds if you've been with us in the series so far, because it sounds like Paul might be contradicting what he said to us back in chapter 6. Do you remember that back in chapter 6, Paul said, sin shall not be your master. But here Paul seems to be contradicting that. Are we in fact doomed to just carry on throughout our lives uh, sinning and failing and sinning and failing? And that brings us to the second last point much more briefly. 
which is the purpose of this Christian experience that Paul describes here. Because I think now we can begin to see how the whole chapter fits together. Because we saw last week that the law reveals sin to show us our need. The law convicts us of sin, not just to make people feel awful, but so that they might come to Christ. The law brings us to the place of recognising our weaknesses and to say, what a wretched man or woman I am. But not so that we kind of wallow in it or lie in it or just give up at that point, but rather that we might turn to Christ who alone can heal us and empower us. And that is why Paul says what he does in verse 24 and 25. Have a look at it. He says, Who will rescue me from this body of death Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, it is Christ who changes you. It is Christ who makes us better. We're to look to him. He is actually the goal and the purpose of the whole chapter. Because the purpose of the Bible is never, never to take us away from Christ. It is always to lead us towards him. The purpose of the Bible is not to insulate us, as it were, from Christ, so that we think, if I do what this book says, if I keep the law, I'll be okay. That's not the purpose of the Bible. It's not why God gave it to us. Because, you see, you'll never be all right. This chapter is reminding us to avoid all self-confidence, all legalism, all complacency. Because the word of God is always and forever pointing us away from ourselves and towards Christ in order to make us feel more intensely our need of him. It's meant to make us feel wretched so that we will go to the one who can heal us and restore us. Martin Luther puts it rather well and I've given you the quote on the back of the think question sheet. He says this, quote, It is characteristic of a spiritual and wise man that he is dissatisfied with himself and hates himself. It is characteristic of a foolish and carnal man that he is satisfied with himself and loves his life here in the world. Can I say that everything is a blessing that makes you and me feel weak and throws us onto Christ? Anything that does that in your life or mine is a blessing. And that is what is so terribly, terribly wrong with so much charismatic so-called spirituality or Christianity today. Because charismatic Christianity is devoted to persuading people that they're strong in themselves. 
and that they can make themselves better. The Bible says that is nonsense. Christ is strong. He is the strong one. And it is in his strength that our weakness is made perfect. And I also want to say to us this morning that the more we advance in holiness, the greater this tension becomes in our lives. The more we advance in holiness, the more we are going to mourn over our sin. It's actually the mark of the greatest saints that they are the most humble and they mourn the most. Why is that? Well, because the closer we get to God, the more we see our sin. The brighter the light of Christ shines into our lives and shows us the dirt. Leon Morris, in his commentary, says this, Great saints throughout the ages do not commonly say how good I am. Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man, is the authentic cry, not of someone who does not believe, but of someone who does. At the end of the 19th century, um, Alexander White was regarded as possibly the greatest preacher in Scotland. And uh, on one occasion, someone came up to him and said, Sir, you are regarded as the holiest man in Scotland. And uh, Alexander White looked at him and he said, If you knew what I am like, you would spit in my face. And he meant it. He meant it. Do you believe that about yourself? Because it's the truth. We are all of us, we are all of us, far worse than we realise. We actually don't see a fraction of our sin. But if we're Christians, it doesn't matter. Because Christ has borne all of our sin and given us his righteousness. And so you'll see on the back of the pink sheet that Stuart Olliot makes this comment on the passage we're looking at this morning. Romans 7, 14 to 25 is the experience of the normal Christian life. It is a life of intense conflict with sin, not of rest from it. It is a life of agonising dismay at imperfection, not of claimed victory. It is a life of earnest longing for glory, not of satisfaction at having arrived. There's a wonderful statement in verse 20 of our passage where kind of the tear-stained apostle, he looks up to the God who sees all things and who knows all things and he says in verse 20, Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Now that's not an excuse. That's not a get out. 
But it is true. We can say, Lord, I did this. But you know, Lord, that's not me. I hate it. I don't want to do it. I want to stop doing it. It's no longer who I am. And my friend, if you are a Christian this morning, well, you can say that. You remember poor old Peter. You know, he he denied the Lord Jesus with curses, didn't he? Uh, And he was all mixed up, he was all confused. And do you remember at the end of the Gospel, Jesus is kind of putting Peter through the mangle. And he was asking him again and again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was just upset and in a complete muddle. And in the end, he just blurted out, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Because underneath all of the rubbish and all of the disobedience and all of the failures, there is a part of me, a part of me that you have created new. And in that place, in my heart of hearts, I love you. Let us thank God this morning that he sees that and he knows that. And let's also remember it about other people, our fellow members of this church family. Let's remember that when they upset us, when they hurt us, when they tread on our toes. Let us remember that Romans 7 is as true for them as it is for us. Yes, of course they did say that. They shouldn't have said it. They shouldn't have done it. But if they're Christians, then in their heart of hearts, they love the Saviour too. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. We confess to you, O God, who searches our hearts and from whom nothing is hidden, that there are depths of sin in all of us of which even we are unaware. And this explains the sad surprises in our lives when we disappoint ourselves and we let ourselves down. And we thank you for Christ. He is the only one who can deliver us. All our hope is in him. And we pray, O God, that it might be true of each one of us that there is a new I, a new creature, new life planted by your Spirit so that in our heart of hearts we do love you And we do want to obey you and to serve you. Help us, we pray, by your grace to cling on to that. Help us to believe it of others. And grant that Christ, day by day, might give us the victory. And to him be all the thanks and praise. And this morning we pray especially for any who are feeling particularly wretched about sin. 
We pray that before this day ends they might find forgiveness and peace in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You have said that though our sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And so we ask these things for us, in Jesus' name. Amen.